Good morning. It's good to see you this morning. If you'll open your Bibles, we come to that time of our service when we open God's Word and to hear what God has to say to us from Scripture. We're continuing our ongoing verse-by-verse study of 1 Peter, and that brings us this morning to 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. I don't know we'll get through all of those this morning, but we will certainly begin looking at this passage 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. Let me read these four verses, or five, excuse me, five verses to you. To sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. Verse 9, and not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead, for you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. Then notice the word for that joins this together. It's like saying because. Then he quotes from the Old Testament, Psalm 34. What I've just told you is based on an Old Testament truth, Peter is saying to his readers, to to these believers. It's based on this Old Testament truth. The one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. You notice in verse 8 that he starts out with to sum up. This doesn't mean he's coming to the end of the letter. You know there's two, more cha- two and a half more chapters left. But what he's coming to the end of is the section that we have been looking at that began back in chapter 2, verse 11. Look back there. He's kind of pulling everything together now from this long section that began back in this verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lust, which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Behavior precedes evangelism, is what he's saying. Show them your transformed life. And that's your greatest evangelistic tool, is your transformed life. Let them see your behavior. That's who the Gentiles are, unbelievers. And then he gave some examples, you recall. We've been looking at those over the last few weeks. Some examples of where you can demonstrate this changed behavior. He says in relation to the government, submit. The key word in all of these sections has been submit. Submit to the government. Line yourself up under this authority that God has established called government. As long as they don't ask you to do anything that violates the will of God, you submit to your government. He says that an attitude of submission, be a good citizen, don't malign the government, don't start a a revolution, don't live in defiance to them. It doesn't mean we can't be involved in peaceful protest and things like that, like we said before. Our society allows that. Nothing wrong with that, but simply do not be defiant towards them and malign our leaders. Verse 18, submission once again. 
Another way, your behavior can be excellent among the Gentiles in submission to your, your employer. In this context, it was slavery. Our context is an employer-employee relationship. Speaking to those slaves, he's saying to them, you be good workers, you do what is right. He says, you don't speak evil of those in authority. He goes on, and I think in our context, be a good employee, be on time. We said many of these things. Don't speak evil of those who are over you. Verse 19, I think, is a key verse. Suffer unjustly. Nobody likes to suffer, and we especially don't like to suffer unjustly. We have within us a sense of to make wrongs right. And he is saying that it finds favor with God when you suffer unjustly. And he gives an example. Your example, he says in verse 21, in following, your example is Christ. We're to follow in his steps. He was reviled and did not revile in return, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges rightly. Then in chapter 3, he moves into the family, and he moves into the role of the wife and the role of the husband. Submission of the wife to the husband, to an even ungodly husband, to a non-believing husband. Uh, or maybe a husband that's a Christian that uh, is living ungodly. Verse 7, the husband to his wife. Uh, he submits to her, not to her authority, but to her desires and to her interest. I was reading in uh, this little book that I've been reading as I've been teaching and studying First Peter uh, by Elliot Clark, Evangelism as Exiles. And he refers to a story about uh, his wife who was very sick. He was living in, they lived in a, as missionaries in a Muslim country. His wife was very sick. And at many times it was hard for him not to view her sickness as a hindrance to their ministry. And many times he would be dependent on her to get things ready and, and help him in preparation for the guests that would come to sit around their table. Many times he would be dependent on her to be a part of the work that he was trying to do in this very difficult country, but she was very sick. They had to go to other places, to, uh, out of the country even, to find medical help for her. But it was through his serving his wife, he said, and that's the whole purpose of these verses, folks. The, in serving his wife, there was a neighbor watching. And the way he treated his wife was instrumental in that woman pursuing Jesus. He says in the book, on page 128 of this book, he says, our conduct is critical to our witness as exiles. We must remember that our neighbors are watching. Like Asman, that's her name. They all know if our walk matches our talk. Our extended family, friends, co-workers, and children can all see if our faith is real. And one way God has ordained for them to be drawn to Christ is through the visible, observable testimony of our holiness. They need to see we're different, that we're like our Father, and that our deeds are good. Only then, as we shine before others, will some of them actually see the light. Our desire to reach others is a motivation to us. Sometimes it can be a fear to us. You know, I stake a stand for Christ, and they're going to say, hey, you don't, you don't match up to the book all the time. Well, I, I know that. I know that. But my motivation to desire to reach others and what motivates me is I want to have a life that matches the book, recognizing I will fail, recognizing I will sin, recognizing I will fall short many times. We're to, we are to let others see that the gospel transforms us. And all of these are 
in a self-denying context. All of these are not doing something that is natural. It is not natural to like your government or to always like your boss or to, 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 to want to submit to your husband or to submit to your wife and, and lead her. It's, those are not natural things. There's things that rise up in us that don't want to deny ourselves to do those things. It's easy to do evangelism through radio and TV and where it's not up close and personal. It's easy to do it through a billboard. It's easy to hand out a track. It's, it's easy to do it in a political context and some political cause or something. It's easy to do it in all of those things. But this is up close and personal. This is when there must be some kind of self-denial. If you say do evangelism, then you think of the other things that are outside of you that are the ways you want to approach it, which they're all good. But when it really affects you, and it really has some call to you to change in your behavior, in the way you're doing things, in the way you're thinking, in the way you're treating your wife, in the way you're treating your husband, in the way you're, what your work ethic is, and how you're talking about your government. That's when it gets a little more difficult and challenging, and that's when we sort of are, and we need God's grace to help us, because none of that's natural. We must adorn the gospel We must put flesh on the gospel. We must adorn the gospel. We must dress up the gospel. We must make the gospel look attractive. Titus teaches that very clearly. Today's passage says in verse 8, to sum up all of you. See the word all of you? Now he is not talking to this group, this group, this group. He's talking to everybody. Everybody in the church. Everyone. This is a corporate message. He's giving some corporate instruction to the church beginning in verse 8 and following. Most commentators really highlight verse 10. I think this is interesting. Look at verse 10. The one who desires life to love and see good days. Implied, then do this. You desire that, then do this. That's the implication. You desire desire a good life? You desire life and good days? Do this. This is what we must do to, to have and love a good life. This is an interesting psalm. It's been, this section of this psalm has been called the ancient recipe for a happy life, Psalm 34. And I think it's safe to say that everybody in this room wants to have a good day. Everybody in this room wants to have a happy life. I do. All of us do. We want to get the most out of life. And in our context, sometimes in our culture, sometimes, and I think this culture as well, but people think it means to pursue something. It means to pursue some object to find happiness in the pursuit of things, the chasing after of things or, or objects, objects that I can somehow find that satisfaction in, that I can somehow find fulfillment in and happiness in. It could be people uh, change, uh, pursuing a relationship, per- people trying to find satisfaction in people, in, in cars or jobs or houses or money or vacations. Sex, drugs, alcohol, clothes, entertainment, sports, exercise, you know the list. Just give me the right circumstances and the right things and I will have a happy life. But none of those things are the good life. 
because those things are outside of me. And those things cannot satisfy the longings on the inside of me. It's what Jeremiah called broken cisterns. His people go to drink from broken cisterns, give the promise of something, but do not deliver. Give the promise that they will satisfy the thirst, but they don't satisfy. Broken cisterns which do not satisfy. And our society is proof of that. We have a very wealthy society by the world standards, and people are pursuing the good life all the time and never finding it. Most people are not happy with life. And they would not say they're living the good life. They're not having many good days. And some of you may be saying that. Maybe some of you are saying that. I'm not sure how old this statistic is, but John MacArthur in his commentary pointed out that the highest suicide rate, a group for suicides, is people over 60. Imagine that. You get to the ending years, toward the ending years of your life, and you realize life is meaningless. Life is empty. Life has no purpose for me. Life is unfulfilling. All is vanity. All is meaningless. Life has not been good, and life will not get better. In the Bible, you recall Solomon said this. Sol Solomon had everything, absolutely everything. It's, you cannot even conceive of what Solomon had, the wealth he had. The queen of Sheba saw his wealth, and she was over overwhelmed, and she was a queen. He had everything everything and chariots and horses and money and women and sex and power and fame and everything, everything that this world could offer. Everything that people today would say, give me that and I will have a good life. Give me that and I will have happy days. Give me that. But he was not content. He did not love life. He did not see good days. He said all is empty. In fact, listen to this from Ecclesiastes 2.17. So I hated life. For the work which had been done under the sun was grievous to me because everything is futility and striving after wind. Few people are content and fulfilled. Few people are at peace and happy. And Peter's saying, as Christians, we should enjoy life. We should love life. That's what he's quoting to these people. Oh, you know what? I thought about this. I go, what are you talking about? These people are under persecution. These people are facing possible death. These people are facing unjust treatment all the time. Nobody stands up for them in this world. Nobody. Nobody comes to their, they're, the, they're down at the bottom. And so you're going to talk about desires, the one who desires life and lo to love and see good days. You're going to say that is even a possibility for these people. One six. 
distressed by various trials. 1 Peter 1.6, distressed by various trials. 1 Peter 3.14, do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. 4.1, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. You're going to suffer in the flesh is the implication of 4.1. 4.12, beloved, do not be surprised by the fiery ordeal among you. Oh, and by the way, have a good day. Have a good day. There's a formula here. I don't like formulas, but there's a formula. God gives a formula in Psalm 34, and Peter builds on it in 8 and 9. This is a formula. What it means to love life. The word zoe is the word life. Bios is also the Greek word for life. Bios is more life and death. Bios is more the technical term for life. You're either alive or you're dead. Where we get biology from, the, the stuff of life as opposed to dying. But zoe, that's the word that's used here in verse 10. Zoe is not just life opposed to death. It's all the experience, all the richness of really living a meaningful life, a productive life, a purposeful life, not an empty and unfulfilling life. For the one who desires life to love and see good days, it's the love Desire. It's the, that's where the word Zoe is. The desire for that life. They have a strong love and affection for that life. And even persecution, and this is what Peter is saying to them, even in persecution or difficult circumstances, that cannot be taken away from you. That cannot be taken away from you. We're talking about the abundant life. We're talking about what Jesus said. I came to, in John 10, 10, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly meaningful life. So Peter's going to give them a formula. It's based on an Old Testament formula. If you really want to love life and see good days, if you really want to impact your culture, see, I think, I think this is the point. It's about impacting your culture. You're persecuted, but you don't stop seeking to impact your culture. If you seek to have an impression on your culture, see that your life has a purpose. See that your life is about a mission, that there's an evangelistic, see your life in an evangelistic way. I'm here for a reason. Listen, I'm living under this government for a reason. You and I are Americans. We can talk about our government all we want to. Listen, some places in the world they cannot, and this message is to them just as much as it is to us. I live under that government for a reason. God has placed me there as a mission. I, I am in this job not, it's not a dead-end job. It's a job God has provided, and it's got a purpose. It's got a mission to it. I, I, my marriage, my family, that's a mission field to me. My children, we're on mission. We lose sight of that. We just don't know what, what it's all about. 
Why live this godly life? Why live this holy life? Well, you know what? It puts Christ on display so you can reach others. If, if all was needed was we have heaven, then when you, when you came to Christ, he should have just taken us out of the world. But he left us here for this reason, to live in this society, in this family, in that job, or whatever it is, for mission and to have a life with meaning and purpose to reach others for Christ. So he's going to give some attitudes here. These are attitudes that we should have. He's speaking to the church corporately. We're to, we're to, to do certain things corporately. To, when others look at us, they see, they see Christ. They say things in us that are not natural, that are supernatural. They see things in us that cause them to ask, how does that happen? Why? It's how we treat other believers. There's a sense in which it's another submission, really. It doesn't use the word here, but we're submitting to other believers by applying these five things in verse 8 and then to unbelievers in verse 9. This is not complicated this morning, but let me just go through these with you. Verse 8, to sum up, all of you, be harmonious. Harmonious, you think of an orchestra, everyone, or singing, everyone's in harmony. It means to think the same. It means to maintaining an inward unity, unity from within. It's not to be in conflict. We're to be promoters of, of unity, not disruption. I mean, the world sees us that way, too. We're not about disruption. We, we, we promote unity in among us. See, that would be the opposite of harmonious would be disruption. Disruption. And I'm not talking about unity at any cost. I recognize there are theological reasons to, to confront. We have unity in the truth. That's very important. We, we are united around doctrine, certain truths. We're, we're united around the gospel and the mission to the world to preach the gospel to the world. We're united. We're to have unity around those things. And, um, and as we sit under the faithful preaching of the word together, I think we find ourselves more and more on the same page. We go, yeah. We need unity around the gospel and truth. I recognize that Mormons and Roman Catholics have views, same views we have on abortion, against abortion. And they may have other conservative views that we hold to, but that's not unity. That's not what we're talking about here. They, don't, they believe in a different Jesus and a different way to heaven. We don't have unity with them on that. We certainly love and respect and all of those things, but we don't have unity, the kind we're talking about here. We unite around the truth. We reunite around the Word of God. And the unity is because we all submit to the Word of God. When, when God speaks, we submit. And if, if Rod or somebody else is going to stand in this pulpit and say something, he had better be able to back it up in the Bible or nobody's called to, be, to believe it or to submit to it. This is our authority. 
And this is what we unite around. And the things we can't quite figure out, we work at it until we get figured out. So we're talking about a disposition that we have. You know, the great American myth is that you don't need to go to church and the church doesn't need you. That's a myth. We're a, we're a body. We have parts that work in harmony and always working together for the common good, for the, for the glory of God and to exalt Christ and to be harmonious. And if you go to outside of Europe and the United States, you go to places like Africa and, and, and Asia and, and where churches are meeting, I mean, they get together. People will walk in the snow. It's 5 a.m. in the morning in Siberia to get to a place where they can worship with other believers. They'll pay the price to get there because they, they value that fellowship so much. There's such a unity. I, I, they sense with other believers in Christ and they want to be with other believers in Christ. Africa, under the intense persecu- persecution they face in that part of the world, people will risk it to get together to worship. And you've got to be gathered together to, to think harmoniously. You do. It's how like-mindedness is developed by just being together, worshiping together, coming together, singing truths together, sitting under the Word of God together. You know, it's okay to, be, to disagree. That's not what this is talking about. You can disagree. There's things to disagree on. But you don't carry, let me tell you something, you don't carry out church disagreements on the internet. You don't carry, carry out church disagreements on Twitter or Facebook or other places like that. You, you do that as you're together. You come together and work through those things together. Because you want to preserve the unity of the body. You want to preserve the like-mindedness of the body. Because that's what Christ wants. He wants his church to have unity. He prayed that for his church. We don't create the unity. We've said this many times before. We don't create the unity. That was created by Christ. He answered his own prayer. Let them be one. Well, he made them one. What we do is we get in there sometimes and we try to break it up. But no, we preserve what he has created. When there are disagreements, we just come together and deal biblically with those things. Secondly, he lists the word sympathetic, tenderhearted, causing us to identify with someone else, sharing fellow feelings, rejoicing with those who rejoice, Romans 12 says, weeping with those who weep, caring enough about other believers to feel life the way they feel it. I really pray we'll be a sympathetic congregation. I really pray we'll go beyond the prayer list, go beyond Sunday to be sympathetic and to feel others' feelings. Feel life as others feel it. Christ was sympathetic. We don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. We need to act like Christ to each other. Sympathize with each other's weaknesses. Each other's sicknesses and struggles and sins and everything else. Come alongside people sympathetically to encourage them, to provide a meal to them, to send a card or whatever. And this is not common. This is not a common way to think. Most of us think like this. I've got my own problems. I don't have time for anybody else's problems. That's how most of us think. 
Most people view church that way. I just go there to see what I can get from it. If I don't like what I'm getting from that church, then I'll go somewhere else. That is not a biblical view of the local church. We come to minister, not to be ministered unto. We come to, to serve, not to be served. Use the word brotherly in this passage. Brotherly, we love each other as brothers. Philadelphia, uh, city of brotherly love, carries that idea into this, into this word, loyalty to one another. And we see our family as the body of Christ and, and we see ourselves as siblings to one another. Christ is our, our head and we are siblings to one another. God is the one that put us in this church together. I didn't get to choose who my brothers and sisters were gonna be in my physical family. I don't get to choose it in the local church either. God places those in the church that are gonna be my brothers and sisters in Christ. So many times we get irritated by people in the church. Well, I understand that. We, that happens to, all, happens to all of us. I know I irritate people and I mean, it just, we do, we just do. But it's not so that we can just sit around being irritated. It's to help us see what we need to change in our own lives. That's the reason God brings people, different people, difficult people across our paths. So we can correct things in our own heart. God is not as much concerned about what comes at me as what I do in response to it. And that's what he does. He brings things all day long into all of our lives. To, to reveal our hearts to ourselves. And he does difficult people that way. Romans 12.10 says, Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Hebrews 13.1, Let love of the brethren continue. And then it comes to the word kindness. It's the word um, <clears throat> kind-hearted there. Kindness means you're emotionally connected. Splankna. It's the idea of you're feeling something from the gut. It's something that's from within you. It's an emotional connection with other people. You, <clears throat> excuse me, you treat, others, you treat others like you belong to the same family, but you've got this deep love and empathy for them. Tenderhearted is the word used in Ephesians 4.32. The opposite of that is cold-hearted. Jesus was deeply touched with compassion. Same word. And this, this moves beyond sympathy, which feels for somebody. Sympathy, it goes to, it goes to I want to be part of the solution. I want to, I see the problem. I want to be part of that solution. I think about Christianity and how it's affected the Western world. And you, and you think about how, um, how slavery was ended because Christians saw a need in England. You saw how children, five-year-old children, having to go into the mines and work, and Christians saw a need and did something about it. It ain't going all the way back to ancient Rome. There was, it was a, just a callous society. Life was cheap. There was no pity, no hospitals, no medical treatment. In the mili- unless you were in the military, in the royal family, there was no medical treatment for you, no nursing homes, no rescue missions for the homeless, no orphanages, no programs to feed the hungry. That's a callous society. You see the influence of Christianity on Western civilization. You see that there were Christians who saw 
the problem. It was more than just sympathetic to the problem. There was an empathy. There was, I want to be a solution to the problem. I want to be a minister. I want to minister to the problem. How can I solve it? Any brand of Christianity, Hebert says in his commentary, any brand of Christianity that fails to make us more tenderhearted is not Christianity. If it just causes you to be callous, if you just take in doctrine and just get cold-hearted because of what you're hearing, you're not hearing it right. If you're just hearing the loving, the, hear the words of truth and it's not making your heart more tender, you're not hearing it right. Are there ministries that you can see, ministries of mercy that you can be a part of, or are there some that you can even start? That's the idea of this word. And finally in his list is the word humble in spirit. This is the idea of having a low opinion of yourself in light of the importance of somebody else. I'm not talking about low self-esteem. I'm talking about a godly love and consideration of others as more important than you, Philippians 2, 3, and 4. Quite frankly, I don't think any person suffers from low self-esteem. I don't think anybody does. I think people who tell you that they are, are suffer from that. They suffer from the fact that you don't esteem them as highly as they think you should. I think they let themselves down to some high standard that they think they could have lived up to and they haven't lived up to that. And therefore, it's just a self-focus looking at myself. What we all need is Christ esteem. We need to see ourselves the way Christ sees us, not the way we see ourselves or we think others see us. We need to ask ourselves, am I pleasing to Christ? Not am I pleasing to others? Am I just trying to please others? Or am I trying to please myself or to have others think of me in some elevated way? The Bible says we all love ourselves. Low self-esteem is not our problem. We all love ourselves. Love your neighbor as what? Yourself. Husbands, love your wives. What man did not love his own body? The same energy you go to take care of you, the same love you show to you, show to somebody else. It's always an outward focus. It's never looking inward. It's never focusing on yourself. But this idea of humble in spirit is the test, I think, so many times is, I, I, like, I really like it when people call me a servant. Wow, I'm a servant. I really hate it when people treat me like a servant. Ugh. That's your test right there. I walk around all day with the label, put a, put a plaque in the hallway for me, servant. But don't treat me like one. Oh, my goodness. Could there be anything worse than that? And this was a foreign term to the culture to the pagan world around Peter. It was be aggressive, no humility, get to the top of the ladder, never put yourself under anybody else. And you really see this in a mother, don't you? A mother who would see a piece of pie on the table and she would say, I think I'll get that piece of pie, only to be interrupted by her six-year-old child who comes up and says, I would really like to have that piece of pie. And all of a sudden, the mother's not hungry anymore. You see the sacrificial love. The sacrificial love that sacrificing her own desire. That's what we're talking about. Sacrificing my own desires for somebody else. Can you imagine what Tallahassee would think of us if we acted this way to each other? Sacrificing our own desires. 
John 13, 35 says, by, all this, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. 1 John 3, 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. That's our greatest evangelistic tool, these five things. The world just takes notice. The world takes notice when we treat each other this way. First uh, John 4.20, listen to this verse. First John 4.20, if someone says I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Let me read it again. If someone says I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Listen, that is a very strong verse. I just want you to know that. It's a very strong verse. It is black and white. There is no way around that verse. There is no, there is no Greek gymnastics that you can do with that verse to make it say more than, or any more than what it says there, or less than what it says there. If you are a grudge holder, if you are a grudge holder, you'd better become a grudge repenter quick. If you have no desire to repent over holding a grudge, then you have better be concerned about the genuineness of your love for God. If you walk around with a grudge towards another brother or sister in Christ, John says it's impossible for you to say you love your brother and, excuse me, for you to hate your brother and to say you love God simultaneously. That cannot be done. Don't deceive yourself. Don't deceive yourself. And then he says this in verse 9, the impact that we have on our, our critics, those outside the church. Notice in verse nine, now I think you could say these are things that happen in the church too, possibly, but I wanna say that this seems to be in the context we're talking about unbelievers based on 1 Peter 2.21, which the very same words are used of Jesus in verse 23, being reviled, he did not revile in return. So I say in the shadow of 221, we're talking about you two be like this to your enemies. Those were unbelievers dealing with Jesus in 221, in 221 through 23. And so I'd say it's probably the same thing here. You act the same way. The way Jesus acted, you act. He did not revile and return. He did not return insult for insult. Neither should you. It's, it's non-retaliation. That's what he's talking about here non-retaliation. We are to have a response of not retaliating. And the assumption is that evil actions will be said or done to us. See, revenge is is the guiding principle of our flesh. I've got to get even. I've got to do tit for tat. We talked about this last week. I've got to get back. If you've done something to me, I must do something back to you. We all want to take the eye for an eye principle, tooth for tooth principle, and live that in our personal relationships. I do believe that is a principle for government in dealing with criminals. I do not believe, and Jesus makes this clear, we don't have the time to look at this morning, in Matthew chapter, in the Sermon on the Mount, that in personal relationships, it's not retaliation. I don't seek retaliation. It's not an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. 
He goes on to say, you love your enemies. The Jews taught that. They taught retaliation, get even. The Jewish leaders did. In Christianity, it's not retaliation. This is the mission field coming at me. How can I reach the mission field? How can I, can I, how can I heap coals on their head? How can I bring about conviction in their heart by the way I respond to them? In Hebert's commentary, he says it like this. Concerning our natural inclination to take revenge when wronged, that's our natural inclination to take revenge when we're wronged, as sinful human beings, you don't have to teach me to have that reaction. It is natural to the unregenerate human nature. But as believers, we're taught and encouraged not to return evil. And he goes on to say, to render railing for railing is to wash dirt with dirt. End of quote. Turn to Romans 12 for a moment. Romans 12. Romans chapter 12. He says in Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 14, he gives this list of things that uh, he has just spent 11 chapters explaining the gospel, the gospel truths, giving great theology. In chapter 12, he starts the practical side of it, practical theology, the practice. He says, bless those, verse 14, who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. We looked at that earlier. Verse 16, be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back, verse 17, evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. Hey, revenge is God's job, not mine. God will get revenge. God will, God, will, God will hold every sinner accountable for his sin, either at the cross or in hell. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Do not, notice this, this is a great verse. This is a great way to sum up this whole section. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That is exactly what the gospel did. Think about that. The gospel overcame my evil, your evil. Overcome, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I want to take the gospel to every evil situation, every insult, every Reviling, I take the gospel there. Our actions are rooted in what God has done for us. Understand that. As a Christian, you have been called to this. This is your calling. You've been called to this. You are called to live like this. That's Romans 12. You're called to be like this. By God's grace, practical living flows from theology. Practical living flows from the cross. Think rightly about God. Think rightly about his word. See, it's really hard to find somebody that doesn't want to fight back. But in the cross, we find resolution to everything. I go back to the cross. And God will judge every human in the world. He will judge you at the cross. If you're a Christian, that's where you want to be. You've been ju- your sin has been judged at the cross. 
For the unbeliever, he will be judged in hell for those sins. All the unjust treatments you've seen in the world, all the leaders in the world who have persecuted and killed millions of people, and they didn't get, they didn't get revenge in this life. They got revenge, God's vengeance. Just trust it to him. We just trust it to him. I don't have to follow Fox News and say, oh, the good guys got better today or the bad guys. You're, never, you're always trying to balance. Is, is justice being upheld? Is justice being, you know, all that. That's crazy. Justice, God will get justice one day. We don't have to make sure people get justice. We don't have to worry about that. It's not ours to be concerned if judgment comes to them. Our concern is to be and to preach the gospel. I don't make sure somebody gets what they deserve in this life. Look at 1 Peter 3.18. I'll close with this. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. See, because we believe that, because we believe that, we don't have to return evil for evil or insult for insult. Instead, we give a blessing. That's what the end of verse 9 says. Instead, we give a blessing. Um, we're to be a blessing to others. We, we can pray for them, preach the gospel to them. We can seek to serve them in some way, help them in some way, meet some need. But the point is, because we are inheritors of blessing, we're to be a blessing. And think about it, you did, not, you did nothing to inherit that blessing. It's like getting an inheritance you don't deserve. It's something you never deserved. You got that inheritance from God, a blessing, and now you're to give that blessing to others. You did nothing to earn it. You're not worthy of it in any way, but yet now you just give blessing to others. You return evil with kindness and goodness. Melt the heart of your abuser Pave the way for possible evangelism and conviction of sin. If you're here this morning and you haven't trusted Christ, that's our main issue. For Christ died also once for sins, the just for the unjust. He was just, we're unjust, that he might bring us to God. Your problem is you cannot get to God. You can't get to God in your own power, your own strength, morality, going to church, any of those things. It's only through Christ. And that's what our communion table reminds us of, that Christ made access to God possible by faith and trust in Him. Father, thank You for our time this morning. Thank You for Your Word and Your truth. We praise You now as we come to this table. In Jesus' name, amen.